Happy Resurrection Sunday. Come on, somebody. Oops. Get a little too excited. Hey, uh, I want to welcome all those who are hanging out online. And if you're joining us for the first time, my name is Christopher, one of the pastors here. And it's such a joy and privilege to be able to worship with you, to, uh, to have you celebrate, and uh, to witness not just the power of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, but like uh, Pastor AJ said, we can celebrate two baptisms today. Come on. And uh, you, might not, you might not be aware of what baptism is, so we're going to explain all of that. Uh, I want to make sure that if you're a guest and you're like, man, I'm not really the church-going, Jesus-following kind of person, uh, we, we, th- we have thought about you, we've prayed for you, and uh, we don't want you to feel like you're on the outside looking in. Uh, and so I have worked really hard to even gear this message for, for all of us, but, but specifically for you as well, uh, so that it would encourage the Christian and it would also open maybe the eyes and the heart to you who are maybe just searching for something and don't know what you're searching for. And so I'm gonna get right into it. But before that, let me just pray. If you wouldn't mind uh, bowing your heads, if you're a person of prayer or not, uh, just so we just slow down to, to be present in the moment and celebrate what Jesus, who Jesus is, what he has done. God, I thank you so much. We are here because you created us. We're here because you have made us for you. And uh, whether people know it or not, uh, we are searching for you, Jesus, in all kinds of things. So I pray today um, that our eyes would be open clearly to see the beauty of you, Jesus. If we've been confused, if we've been um, bitter, angry, frustrated, jaded, just don't have the faith to believe this stuff. It's confusing. Made it normal to us. God, would you renew our faith? Would you give us faith? Would you help us to see that you, Jesus, are better than what this world offers today? So maybe in your own words, if you're not a praying person, you could just simply say, God, would you just open my eyes? Would you open my eyes to see? Maybe, maybe, you're not seeing something. That's the issue. So would you ask God to open your eyes? I don't believe you're here for an accident. You're here for a reason. So God, open our eyes. Help us to see the beauty of who you are. In Jesus' name. If you want your eyes open to see Jesus, would you say amen with me? Amen. Amen. <coughs> amen. i um, so excited to be able to unpack the Bible with you. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, do not worry. It will be on the screen uh, for you. Uh, but we're in a series. We kind of talk in series, and we're in a series called The Good News. Someone say good news. good news. Very good news. Good news. And that can be confusing. What's so good about what you are talking about? What's so good about church? If I'm honest, Chris, church is boring to me. If I'm honest, I've been the services. I didn't understand what was happening. If I'm honest, I don't know what to believe. If I'm honest, I'm coming in incur- uh, discouraged. Anxious. So, what's good about what you're talking about? What's good about what you're talking about? Well, the good news is the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what Christians are celebrating right now. Millions, if not billions, of people all around the world are celebrating the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Last week, we celebrated Jesus' death. And I want to just point out some things to help you frame our time. That when I say gospel or good news, what I'm talking about. What Jesus has done, if you don't know Jesus or if you're really familiar with Jesus, 
The whole idea of Jesus and, and the reality of Jesus is that it's good news, not good advice. It's good news, not good advice. It means that it has been something that Jesus has done for you, not what you have to do for God. And so I'm not here today going to give you a list of things that you have to do to get right with God because that is what other religions claim. The unique claim of Christianity and Jesus is that you don't have to climb up a ladder to get to your creator. Your creator climbed down the ladder to get to you. And that's good news because let me tell you, you cannot climb up the ladder and you are tired of climbing up ladders. Somebody say ladders. I don't know why I had you say that. That sounds like a good word to say. It's just so spiritual. Ladders. Lord Jesus. Uh, But it's exhausting climbing up ladders, and it's exhausting trying to perform. And so today I'm talking about something that's been done for you, not something you have to do for God. And that's a beautiful thing, because all of our lives we're dealing with earning and performing and achieving, and this one thing is something that you don't have to achieve because it's been gifted to you. And so let's read the scriptures to talk about what this good news is, and we're going to unpack it together. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. We'll start there. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Here's a more important word to say. Say first importance. Sounds so much better than ladders. Um, What I also received, that Christ died for our sins. That means he paid the penalty and he restored our relationship with God, reconciled us. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It lines up with what the Bible has said. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. Now, me putting myself into your shoes, you might be thinking a few of these thoughts on the screen here. One, you might hear that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, literally like bodily resurrected. And you might be thinking, I think, Chris, I love you. This is really nice. The coffee is good. It's better than usual. But um, this is all a myth. Come on, let's be honest. This is all a myth. This is all a myth. Come on. It's like every other religious story. It's a myth. Or it's not scientifically possible. Chris, like you're 21st century. You got Google you got chat GPT now. You should be able to figure out this is not scientifically possible. Or maybe you would say this Jesus thing is just religious propaganda. It's just something that is trying to get people into a religion to make that religion larger. Or you would say it's a man-made story. I know many friends I've had who said the Bible is great, but man has made that up. Maybe you would just say, maybe as a Christian or not Christian, this is really hard to believe. Jesus dying resurrecting, dying and then resurrecting. It's really hard to believe. And I I just want to say I see you in your struggle, in your questioning. And I don't want to assume that because I just said it or the Bible said that you should believe it. So let's go on, continue with what Paul says. Paul says, now if Christ, (coughs) excuse me, is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Look at his argument. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Then what I'm doing right now is in vain and a waste of your time. Then your faith is in vain. Everything you've believed and given your life over to is in vain. And we are still all guilty of our sins. Paul is putting a lot of emphasis on the resurrection. 
if he was a sound, reasoning, kind of logical man, he would have put that emphasis on something else, like the historicity of Jesus, because most historical scholars believe that Jesus, almost all of them, believe that Jesus was a real person that lived. Okay, so everything's built on the fact that he lived. No, no, no. But Paul's saying, we're not building on that. We're building on the fact that this man, who he says who he says he was, God in the flesh, and he died and was resurrected. And if that's not true, all this is a sham. 2,000 years of church history, a sham. And we're still guilty in our sins. He goes on to say, then those also who have died in Christ have perished. Those who believe in Jesus but have died, they've perished. That means they're gone forever. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, if we're looking for just a little inspiration for Jesus just in this life and not in the next, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Let's read this last line together on three, starting with but. One, two, three. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. What is that saying? It's a fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits, the first of many to come that will rise from the dead. This is not a unique thing. It's a unique thing that starts off a pattern of history that we will all rise from the dead for those who are in Christ. Now, let me go back to where your mind is. Maybe a question you're asking now is something like this. How do I wrap my mind around that? Christian or not Christian? Atheist, agnostic, different religious background, no problem. How do I wrap my mind around it? This is the question I'm asking myself. How do I wrap my mind around the fact that this Jesus died and raised from the grave? And I want to give you a different perspective this morning that we're going to take a look at. The resurrection might not make sense in your mind, but it does make sense of your life. The resurrection might not make sense in your mind. I'm very aware when I preach this to whoever I'm talking to right now, the resurrection might not make sense in your mind. But I can promise you, and hopefully you will see after this morning, that it does, I believe it does make sense of your life. I thought about it this way. I like food and I hate math, so this is a good example. This is a little bit of my Twitter bio. I love food and hate math. My name is Christopher. Um, You might be approaching Christianity and Jesus like this, like a math equation. And so you haven't believed because you can't figure it out. Because in math equations, you try to solve math equations, right? You try to one plus one equals two. But I want you to see that Jesus is not supposed to be a math equation you can solve. Not because it doesn't make sense, because this math is higher than you can get to. I got to geometry. Very embarrassing. I don't know what's after that because I didn't get to it. Um, (laughs) But I can tell you there's higher math than geometry. Come on, somebody. And uh, so I got the geometry. It's not that I couldn't figure out the problems of trigonometry. That's the word. I think it is. It's that it was above me. You're trying to figure out this equation that you're not supposed to figure out because one plus one doesn't equal two. It does. You just can't figure it out. I want you to see it not as solving, but as a meal, a Michelin star meal. And how do you know this star meal is a good Michelin star meal? You taste and see that it's good. You don't even need to have the Michelin star on the, on the menu. If you tasted it and you saw, man, this is good, then it proves that the Michelin star meal is a Michelin star meal. So you are trying to approach Jesus. I get it. Like, this is logically doesn't make sense. That's fine. I want you to, I'm not asking you to suspend rational thinking. I'm asking you to open up your mouth and taste. Because I think if you open up your mouth and taste what Jesus is offering, you will see that it is 
it is congruent with your lived experience, that it explains your life the best, that it tastes good. And you might not, I not be able to explain why it tastes good, but you know it tastes better than anything you have tasted before. So the question I want to ask, uh, ask and answer today is this. How does the resurrection of Jesus make sense of our lives? I got three movements. So if you're taking notes or just paying attention, we'll just walk through these. It's not all of them, but it's three ones that were put on my heart from God that I want to share. How does the resurrection of Jesus make sense of our lives? Number one, I want to go through the purpose of work. Number two, the problem of suffering. And lastly, the pursuit of longings. I believe Jesus makes sense of our work, our life, and our earth makes sense of our suffering, and it makes, he makes sense of our longings. So if you're ready to, to hear the answers, to hear what the Bible has to say, would you say, I'm ready? ready. Okay, let's say it again on three. One, two, three. I'm ready. I'm ready. I want you to get to the end of this message. My heart is that you might still walk away and go, logically, it doesn't make sense, but man, something is true about this because it resonates so deeply. So let's start with the purpose of work. What does Jesus have to say about our life here and all the work we do? Well, let's start out with this. We know that life feels so short to all of us. Raise your hand if you, if you feel like life is short, that you feel like life goes by fast. Yeah, I talk to every single parent, and they're like, wow, that, that, that flew by. And there's seasons where it feels like this is going forever. And then you look back, and you're like, how is my kid 18? Life goes by so fast. And maybe the average Lifespan is 80 years. So we're living 80 years, and then we're gone. And we strategize, and we work so hard to build civilizations and build businesses and build a legacy and build our lives and build all these things. We work so hard, and we toil, and we strive to accumulate until we die. We work so hard. We do so much planning Years in school, years of reading, just to get to something, then we taste it for a little bit, and then we fade away. And this is what the world believes about this. The world believes there is nothing after death. If you're outside the faith of Jesus or any other religious context, you're believing there is nothing after death. That one day, all of this will fade to black, and everything we've ever done will be lost and reduced to rubble. It might be like, wow, this is somber, but that is the belief that you have to go to if you don't believe that there's life after death, that the 80 years we have is all we have, and everything in this world, and everything every human has ever done for the thousands upon thousands of years that we've been alive, that that is going to go to be lost and turned to rubble in the dark. And here's just some questions that I want to put before you that you have, to, you have to answer, you have to wrestle with if that's true, if you believe that. The question I would ask is, is all this toil really just for 80 years? Is all this work really just for 80 years? All this design, all this beauty, all this purpose, all of this options, all of this stuff just for 80 years? All the time, all the money, all the sacrifice, for what? So it could be forgotten? Will all this end and not matter? Will everything be forgotten one day? It's questions you have to answer. I know you don't want to think about death, but it's coming as a reality for everyone, and you have to think about what happens after. Or are you okay with just saying, all this work is great, and I'm fine if it just goes to black? Here's what Paul says about it. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I'm pretty sure that's where people got YOLO from. 
If we're not raised, if death is the end, let us eat and let us drink for tomorrow we die. What is he saying? If death is really the end of life and everything is going to fade one day, just live however you want to and do you, baby. Because nothing really matters that much. I want to put before you, that is the paradigm you're walking into if you don't believe that there's life after death. You might not say it that way. But the, the common consensus of people who don't believe there's more is that they got to get it now. And at whatever cost, they pursue what fills them and makes them feel good. And sure, we, are, we love people and we serve and we do good. We do good, but how much does it really matter if one day everyone's going to forget everything? The problem with this kind of reasoning, I think, is that we innately, you and I, whether you believe this or not, we innately desire to make meaning out of this life and live for something bigger than ourselves. You and I desire that. We're all searching to be a part of something that is bigger than us. Why do we love sports? Can I tell you, it's kind of funny. Grown, grown men cheering for these people, wearing their jerseys, doing everything like them, and they have never met them. And they never will meet them. And that person, that quarterback, never doesn't know you, doesn't care about you. But why are we so invested in it? Because I think it gives us a taste that we're a part of something bigger. That this, that, that this arena is filled with people that, that are cheering on this thing that is bigger than me. Why do we love politics? Because it makes us feel something bigger. Control and power. We're something bigger. We're trying to get meaning out of this life. And that's a beautiful thing. But here's what the resurrection says. The resurrection of Jesus gives lasting purpose and meaning to the constant toil and work we exert in this life because in Jesus, we will live forever. Not 80 years, not 100 years, not 70 years, we will live forever. Jesus said this to Mary. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live forever even after death. I wanna put before you, that's the claim that Jesus is making. That he is the resurrection and the life. Not just an event, he is the resurrection and the life. And so if you believe in him and receive his gift, 80 years is not your reality. You will live forever. In fact, that says behind that, underneath that, you were meant to live forever. You were meant to live for eternity. That's why you're searching for meaning. That's why you're looking for hope. That's why the things of this world don't seem to always fit or ever fit. Look at this little chart I made. If you like charts, hopefully this is for you. If not, you can ignore it. But this chart is really simple but profound because there's two additions, two versions of life that you can take. One version, the world's version, is that you live, you work, you die. And, and I know you might say, well, yeah, but you die, but you have kids that go on. And you have impact that people make. And there's legacies to generations. And I want to give you that. That's very true. Your life goes past 80 years because my life's going to go past into my kids. But let me tell you, once you die, that life, that impact, those kids, it will fade away one day. And people will forget what you've done. And what you did really probably didn't matter anymore. Like, it, no one will remember that. And so there is some impact, but it fades to black. So all of this toil for a few different dots and it fades to black. But look at what Jesus says. What we do now doesn't end but continues. So that the work you're doing now doesn't stop and fade to black. It actually continues forever. So what you do now actually has so much significance beyond just 80 years or 120 years. 
Because of Jesus' resurrection, we can store up treasures in heaven, Jesus says, now in this life. This means that everything we do now ripples with significance into eternity. Jesus says, how you live now matters for eternity. It's one thing to live for 80 years, that's great, but Jesus says, what decisions you make now impact your eternity. So how much meaning is now infused in the daily act of maybe changing a diaper for your baby, loving your neighbor who you hate? Yeah, that's great for 80 years, but imagine it actually rippling into eternity and affecting now other people's eternity. That Jesus' resurrection gives your life so much more meaning, so much more significance, so much more worth, because you were made for eternity. Number two, the problem of Suffering. How does Jesus' resurrection make sense of our suffering? We're made for eternity. What we're doing is not just ending in 80 years. We live forever, so that matters for the good we do and the, the bad and unjust things we do. But I think this is even a bigger question. How does Jesus' resurrection make sense of our suffering? I hear that question so many times. How can a good God let bad things happen to people? How can a good God who's in control let all this evil, evil happen and, and the suffering happen to his people and to people who don't believe? How can that happen if he's in control? How does Jesus' resurrection make sense of our suffering? You and I would agree there's very clear points of suffering and brokenness. There's emotional trauma and abuse. And maybe, and I'm sensitive to this, that maybe you have experienced something on this list. Emotional trauma or abuse from a parent, a pastor, a friend, a boss, sibling, injustice, racial injustice, violence, and war. These things aren't just happening back then. They're happening right now before our eyes in this city and around the world. Mental health and depression. We have people in our church who struggle with that, who believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, but feel filled with anxiety and depression. And then sickness, disease, and death. That's the brokenness that we experience. That's the suffering that everyone is going through in this earth. And I, no matter what you believe, I think we can get at the same page when we say we all know and agree that the world is broken. Something is wrong. You and I, no matter where you fall on Jesus, I think we can agree that the world is broken. So the questions that you and I are asking, maybe not out loud, but in our hearts, is why is it this way? Why does that happen? Even if you don't believe in a God, you have to be asking, why is there so much evil and pain and things seem to get worse? The shootings in schools, why is it this way? How do we deal with it? How do we go about dealing with this? Do we just kind of like succumb to it? Do we just say it's whatever? How do we deal with the brokenness? What went wrong? I don't know if you asked that question, but I asked that question. What went wrong to make this world so dark and twisted? Oh, it's filled with beauty. But if you turn on the news, you're going to be overwhelmed with the negativity and the darkness so quickly. What went wrong? And can something make it right? Have you asked that question? Or have you been just defeated because the world doesn't offer you an option? Can something make this world right? Maybe you've trusted in politics and people to make it right, and it seemed that they're corrupt and nothing really works. The world doesn't have a realistic answer to the brokenness we experience around us. I haven't found one. And the brokenness that we experience within us. It's not just your neighbor that is broken. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're broken. Now turn to your other neighbor and say, I'm broken. Don't be judgmental. 
You're broken and I'm broken. We're broken. There's not just brokenness outside of us. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said that the, the greatest problem in this earth is me. It's not you. It's me. It's in my heart. Something is wrong with us. And the world doesn't have a realistic answer. And it only offers you failed coping mechanisms to deal with all of this brokenness. Oh, you know what those are. Let me just numb myself with a drink or two to ignore and bury the pain of this anxiety or fear. Let me forget my worries by binging Netflix. Come on, somebody. Let's just be real. I've done that. Stressed out. Let me just turn something on so I don't forget, so, so I forget the pain that I'm feeling in my mind. Leave your pain behind and travel overseas. Get a new experience because that's going to help you. And then what happens? You come right back to the same kind of pain. You didn't change it. You just left it to come right back to it. The world doesn't offer an explanation for the brokenness that I believe in or makes sense. And it doesn't offer a way to carry it or deal with it. But the resurrection of Jesus not only makes sense of the pain and the sorrow we experience, it also gives us the only real power to carry it without being crushed. Here's what I know about you and I, no matter what you believe, suffering and brokenness, it crushes you. I've been crushed by the pain of being uh, neglected or the pain of being hurt by friends or the pain of being stabbed in the back or the pain of, of anxiety. I have been, I have seen it and felt the crushing that the world's brokenness has placed on my shoulders and maybe you have as well. And Jesus gives you explanations for why it's broken and an ability to carry it unlike this world. So let's start there, explanation. If the world doesn't offer an explanation for why things are broken, besides maybe evolution, but that doesn't explain it, then, then what does Jesus say? Well, the Bible says this in Ecclesiastes. God made human can, uh, humankind upright. That means good. God made humans good, but they have sought many evil schemes. God made this world good. He didn't make it evil. He didn't make it broken. He made it good. And God's not the one that turned everything bad. We turned against God and have sought evil schemes. There's a word for that is sin. And sin is opposite of God's good design. So for example, in relationship, sin is hatred when God's good design is love. Sin is bitterness when God's good design is forgiveness. Sin is service while uh, God's, or uh, serving yourself is selfishness while God's good design is laying your life down for your friends and thinking about them. Sin turns everything inward and it explains to us why the world is so broken because our hearts are not in tune with God's good design. And look at what Paul says about this. I love the Bible. The Bible doesn't ignore the hard things. It actually leans into the hard things. The Bible is a very messy book and very honest and real book. Paul says this, he's an apostle. He says, I'm afflicted in every way. Anyone ever felt afflicted in every way? Raise your hand. Like, man, stuff just keeps coming down. Like when it rains, it pours. When one bad thing happens, a whole bunch of bad things happen. And Paul, in the Bible, 2,000 years ago, said, I'm afflicted in every way, but I'm not crushed. Oh, I'm afflicted, I'm not crushed. Oh, I'm perplexed. Anyone ever felt perplexed, confused, dazed, disoriented? That's okay. It's a human nature. Even Paul, who believed in Jesus, felt perplexed, but he was not driven to despair. He was afflicted, but not crushed. He was perplexed. He was confused at the brokenness around him and in him, but he wasn't driven to despair. Why? 
What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do and how does it keep Paul from being crushed under the pain of this world? Well, look at what he says in a different book to a different church. Here's in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, oh, there's real sufferings now, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is saying, I'm not ignorant of the suffering. I'm not blind to it. I'm not naive. I'm not ignoring it. I'm not overlooking it. I'm naming it and facing it. This suffering is real and it's hard, but it's not worth comparing with the glory that is ahead of us. Do you have something you're looking ahead of the present sufferings? I heard it said one day that there's no way you can get through today if you don't know there's a better tomorrow. It's not the weight of the affliction that crushes you, this person said. It's the fact that you know there's no better tomorrow. And so now you're crushed because this is the end. But Paul is saying there's something better. And you have to know that Jesus' resurrection from the grave was the defeat of sin and death and the promise that one day he will return to make all things right that are wrong. Do you know that? The resurrection wasn't just Jesus doing a magic trick to go, woo, look at him, God. He didn't need to prove that. He wasn't trying just to prove something. He was trying to do something. Jesus didn't need to prove anything to anyone. He was God. He did that by trying to show his life. But what we were doing was more than just proving who he was. He was doing something. He was in our place dying for our sins and then defeating the death that we're all heading towards. And he's gonna come back to make all things right. This is the glorious hope that enables us to not be crushed by the weight of suffering now. Because you can now bear the weight of affliction knowing that this 80 years is 80 years. But eternity in glory is eternity in glory. And that's way better than the present affliction. The Bible doesn't say that when you follow Jesus, things get better. As in like, you will never feel pain. The Bible says that one day all pain will be removed. Jesus isn't trying to just make your life better for 80 years. Does he make your life better for 80 years? Oh, yes, he does. I've never experienced as much joy as following Jesus. This summer will be 17 years following Jesus. I'm 34, so now half my life has been following Jesus. And half my life, I didn't even care about Jesus. So I've lived both lives. I get it. But I've experienced more joy in the last two years of my life than I experienced in the first 17 years of my life because of Jesus. Because that glorious hope. And so when things happen that are tempted to crush me, they do not crush me. They still hurt. They cut me. They don't crush me. Because I know that the future is that when Jesus rose, he's coming back to restore all things. It's not just for the skeptic. Do you believe that as a Christian? That you can endure and hold on because things are hard, but they will get better. Jesus gives us the best explanation to suffering and a way to not be crushed. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a better explanation for suffering than sin? Do you have a better answer and explanation to why this sin, why this world is broken, why things are messed up, why trauma and abuse happens? Do you have a better explanation for that? If so, that's great. I would love to hear it because I haven't found an explanation that has explained suffering like the Bible, and the question you also have to answer is do you have a greater hope in the midst of pain? What do you hold on to when life gets really difficult? And you might be going through that season right now. 
What, what are you holding on to? What do you go to to get you through that pain? I know life is hard. I want you to see that nothing that you're holding on to is better than the hope that one day everything will be made new. It might help you for a few short days, weeks, years, but the pain will come again and it will crush you and what will you do then? Jesus' resurrection makes sense of our suffering. And number three, how does Jesus' resurrection make sense of our longings? He makes sense of our work here on earth because now we have eternal significance in this finite world. We were created for eternity. He makes sense of our suffering by explaining it through sin and giving us a glorious hope that one day there will be a world without brokenness. But how does Jesus' resurrection make sense of the longings in our hearts? Here's the reality I want to put before you. It's no secret, you and I know, that we have cravings and thirsts that keep us searching. You and I know that. You feel it, I feel it. We have cravings and thirsts that keep us searching. Someone say thirsty. I don't know what that means, but you're you're thirsty, you're hungry, you're always searching. There's something. I'm, I'm hungry right now, my stomach is growling. But you know what's even crazier than that? Our souls are constantly growling. And oh yes, you try to stuff it. But isn't that crazy? How the more you stuff it with things, the more it actually growls in this world. We have cravings and thirsts. What, what are those? Well, there's a lot of things. I didn't list all of them, but endless entertainment and pleasure. The media entertainment industry is probably a trillion-dollar industry. I mean, it is crazy with Hollywood and Netflix and Apple TV and Hulu and all the shows and the ways that we numb ourselves in video games. And we want to feel pleasure and we want to be entertained. I'm not saying it's all bad stuff, but it's a longing we have, like a very strong pull in our hearts. We want experiences that are new and vacations that, that thrill us and seeing new things. We desire relationships and love and intimacy. And it drives us to do and move things around our lives. You might desire more money and possessions and that grips your heart and you can't explain it but you just are craving and hungry for the next thing and if your friend has it you want it maybe you're desiring some safety or comfort and peace and you're like man i just want to be able just to have a peaceful not anxious life and so you're desiring these things but the questions that i keep asking myself and hopefully you ask yourself is why do we have these longings why do we have them why do you keep searching for stuff? Why do you keep going after the next thing? We, we, I mean, I look at my life, I look at your life, and if you zoom out and watch the news, humans are just in constant search for something, no matter what season they're in. You get a wife, and you're like, this, you're single, and you're like, yeah, don't tell me single is awesome. I can't wait to get married. And you get married, and marriage is awesome, but you still, it doesn't do it for you. Any married couple say that? Be careful with your wife next door. Ah! Wow, you're going to pay for that amen later. <laughs> Woo, you're going to need a resurrection. It doesn't do me, it doesn't do it for me because I get my wife and I love her and I cherish her. I'm so grateful for my wife, but then I'm searching for something else. I get kids and I'm like, yeah, that's great. Maybe you're wanting kids and you get them, but then you're searching for something else. And you get the car and the job and the fame. I know people who have gotten everything, Super Bowl rings, the hot model, the great money, and they say, my life is so empty still. 
So why do we have these longings? Why do we live in search for something? And why can't we satisfy these thirsts? That's the question we need to ask. Why are they never satisfied? The world, from my vantage point at least, does not offer a compelling explanation to these longings other than that they are just a random firing of neurons that have evolved over the years. Can I be honest? What else explains your longings? I'm sorry, but your pursuit of beauty is not explained by survival of the fittest. Your pursuit for intimacy is not explained. You can just use it in a functional kind of way and get your kids and do that stuff. So why do we desire things that aren't even necessary for our survival? The world says all it is, I was listening to an atheist Atheistic science the other day, scientists, and he said, yes, I, and this is the top leading one, Rich Dawkins. He said, yes, I believe that this whole life was created by a programmed one cell that was able to multiply into all this world. I don't want to laugh, but that is really, that's harder to believe than Jesus' resurrection. That one cell multiplied and made you and I and this world and all the food and the flowers and the smells. And even if it did, I'll give you that, how would it explain that we all have the same desires? Across civilizations and cultures, we have the same desires. We're brought up differently, but our core desires are the same. The world cannot give you a compelling explanation for your longings, and it cannot offer a solution to satisfy those longings. But the good news is that Jesus' resurrection explains that we have these longings that we cannot quench because you and I were created for another world. And maybe that explains why you're trying to search in this world for the thing, but it doesn't work. And maybe you're not broken in your longing. Maybe your longing was meant for something else. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. If you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, he's a fantastic author and thinker, but this is so compelling. Hopefully it helps you see this in a new light. He says this, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. He goes on to say, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, we don't see through the book through the relationship, but we think that's it, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. Listen to this. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of the tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Oh, I love that. The things that you are finding so compelling about your relationship, about this, this movie, about this food, about this experience, is not the thing in it itself. It is the scent of a flower you have not yet found, the echo of the tune we have not yet heard in the news from a country we have not yet visited. He says this, he ends by saying, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our hearts of hearts, we have ever desired anything else. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. What is C.S. Lewis saying? It's the same thing the author in Hebrew says. For this world is not our permanent home. Come on. This world 
is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home that is to come. And he says they were longing, these people who live for Jesus and in the, in the Old Testament living for God, they were longing for a what? Let's read that out loud. Better country, a better country, a heavenly one. Isn't that explain what he's saying, what you're experiencing? This is not our home. Oh, it was supposed to be until sin, this two, teared it apart, and now we are looking at this world and saying, why can't I match my longing with satisfaction? Why can't this complete me? Why can't this help me? Why can't this satisfy me? Because the world that we're living in now is not the world we were intended to live in. Something has gone wrong, and you were made for a better world. This is not our permanent home. I don't know about you, that is such good news. I don't want this to be my permanent home. I love this life in this world. But if this is what we're going to do for eternity, it's broken. But Jesus says, you were made for a better world and where all those longings actually find satisfaction. All those thirsts are quenched. This is what the Bible says at the end. His resurrection has opened this up for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Someone say new heaven. New earth. It's a new earth. I told my kids last night trying to explain this. That if you, I, I just built a, a $500 Lego set. Don't judge me. I saved up money for it. Okay, it's important. It's Lord of the Rings. Don't judge me. I, I give, okay? Um, but I built a $500 Lego set. It was 6,000 pieces, and it was such a joy. And I spent so much time building it. It's in my office if you want to check it out. It's beautiful. But oh my gosh, I was so careful of bringing it to the office because I didn't want it to break. Now, what if it broke? Would I say, ah, oh, it's not worth it, who cares about it, and start over and buy a new one? No, that's money. I didn't have the $500, I definitely don't have the 1000 bucks. And you would really judge me and question my expenses. So what would happen if it broke? Well, because I cared for it so much, I would remake it to what it was always supposed to be. And what Jesus is doing is not saying, well, things are broken, I'm just gonna like, move you to a different planet. That's what some religions believe. No, no, no. If Jesus created this world, and let me tell you, there's a lot of detail in this world, too much detail to think that it's all an accident. Too much detail and design to think that it's an accident or temporary. And so if Jesus put all this work into creating a beautiful world that got broken, don't you think he will come back and restore and make it better and put the Lego pieces back where it was supposed to be? And that's the promise of the resurrection, that one day there's a new, new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and earth has ceased to exist. That doesn't mean it's going to be gone forever. That means that the old ways of life are gone. And in this new heaven, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be sorrow and anguish or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. The former things are the things that we hate, the suffering, the injustice, the pain, the death. Those have passed away. And everything you were created for, everything you were longing for is going to be satisfied and met in Jesus in the new world. That is a hope. It's unrivaled. And the world holds a candle to the sun of that kind of hope. Maybe you're in here today and you, you, don't, you, don't, even, you don't even care about Jesus, but you're fearful of death. Jesus, the Bible says rose from the grave to free people from the slavery and the fear of death because we don't have to be in bondage now. See, people are, they are working so hard to not die. Christians can work so hard to live because they know death's not the end. The world is busy trying not to die. 
The Bible says to live is Christ is gain, but to die, or to live is, live is for Christ, but to die is gain. What can make you say that death, the greatest loss, is for gain? Well, the resurrection of Jesus. See, if you're in this world and you don't believe in Jesus, then death is the greatest loss. And it ends everything. But to Paul, death was just a portal to meeting the Savior and to seeing the new world. And that's what you were created for. So back to our question that I started with. How does the resurrection of Jesus make sense of our life? Well, number one, it gives us an answer for and a hope in our suffering. Number two, it infuses our brief life with eternal significance. You were made for more, and you know that. Number three, it explains our longings with a new and better world. Jesus, I believe, makes the most sense of your life, more than anything this world has to offer. And look what he says. Let me close with this. Jesus said to him, he's talking to another man, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Why does Jesus say that? And later on he says, no one can come to God except through me. What, what does that mean? It sounds exclusive. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Well, Jesus, what he's saying is that I am what your heart has been looking for the whole time. I am what you've been searching for. I am the way to live. I am the truth to believe. I am the life that gives you power over death and reasons for living now. Jesus is that. And can I tell you, friends, today, if you're here and you're a skeptic or you don't believe, there is no one else that is making that claim. And so you have to wrestle with, why does Jesus make that claim? He's either a lunatic, a liar, or he really is Lord. Jesus makes sense of life because he is life itself. So why do all roads find their way completed in him? Because he is life. He created, the Bible says, Colossians, that you were created by him, through him, and for him. So I'll put before you one last time. You can keep searching to figure out how to numb yourself from pain. You can keep searching to try to protect yourself from death. You can keep searching to satisfy your longings, but you will not be able to do any of those outside of Jesus. That is a claim I've built my life on. And I've tasted and seen that it is good. And can I tell you, it's good, baby. It tastes good. So maybe today you're not at a point where you're like, man, I can just jump over. I'm going to get baptized right now. Chris, I'm going to put me in the water. Maybe you're not at that point yet where you can wrap your mind around it still. But maybe you would say today, I'm going to take a step towards Jesus. I've been running. I've been ignoring. I'm going to take a step towards Jesus because you're right. Nothing else makes sense like him. Now, you would just test it out and see that Jesus is better than what you're holding to believe about reality. And so let me ask you one last question before we celebrate the baptisms. Is what you are hoping in better than what Jesus is offering you? I want you to answer that. And you can answer that now because you know what you're hoping in. You know what you bank your life on. You know what you're oriented reality around. You know that. And let me just put that before you because you are going to die one day. It's inevitable. And so these questions matter. You're not here for an accident. You're here for a reason. Whether you think you're here for, for a friend or not, I believe you're here for a reason to hear this and to answer this question. Is what you are hoping in better than what Jesus is offering you? And I've only given you a taste of what Jesus can offer you. Forgiveness of sins, the promise of new life, the presence of God with you, his love over you. Is what you have better than that? If it is, then fine. Fine. 
But you have to test that out. I have a feeling if you tested it out for any length of time, you would realize it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And so why not try Jesus? Why not believe in him? Why not repent and surrender? Why not kick the tires? Why not say, you might be right and let me follow you to see? I want to invite you to trust in Jesus because he is what you've been looking for. And he does move you from death, physical, emotional, spiritual death, mental death, to physical life and emotional life and spiritual and mental life. Not just now, but in eternity.